This morning we return uh, to our study of the New Testament book of Philippians, uh, which has uh, taken us into the latter half of chapter 3. When I last preached uh, two weeks ago, uh, we examined uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 12 through 16, in a message entitled, Run the Race uh, to Win the Prize. Uh, in that same service, we observed baptism and the Lord's Supper. So although we made it through the sermon outline, we were really pressed for time, and it was a real quick treatment of the material. So what I'd like to do is to begin with a review of that message, uh, which you find on the first page of your sermon notes. And it also gave me the opportunity to amplify on a couple of those points where I did not have the opportunity two weeks ago. And then we'll close out chapter 3 by looking at helpful temp tips in running the race. Uh, in verses 17 through 21, which you'll find on the back side of your sermon notes. So look at the introduction with me there in your sermon notes. Uh, going back to Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, uh, it describes Paul's encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and the glorious exchange he made when he gave up all that he was for all that Christ is. Uh, verses 4 through 7 detail what Paul lost in the exchange, all that he surrendered, that he gave up for Christ, while verses 8 through 11 detail what Paul gained in the exchange. And you see there in your sermon notes the five glorious realities that Paul and every believer gains uh, when entering a relationship uh, with Jesus. First, personal and intimate knowledge of Christ. Not merely knowledge about Christ, but a relationship with Christ. An experiential knowledge of Christ gained through involvement with Him. A believer not only gains forgiveness through the past work of Christ, he not only gains hope in the future return of Christ, but he gains strength through the present reality of Christ as Jesus takes up residence in our hearts. Paul wrote in verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing, knowing experientially Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in comparison or in order that I may gain Christ. Now what is the second thing a believer gains in a relationship with Christ? Right standing with God. Through the righteousness of Christ. How does a person become righteous in the eyes of God? Not through works of righteousness which we do. But through the righteousness of God imputed or imparted to us as a gift of God. As we put our faith, as we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Verse 9 reads, and that we might be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, not having a righteousness derived by my efforts, by my works, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Look at the third thing a believer gains in a relationship with Christ, the power of Christ to overcome sin and serve God. Verse 10 reads, that I may know Him 
and the power of His resurrection. The resurrection is not just a historical event in the life of Christ. It is a power available to the believer today, in this very moment. Uh, That's why we read in Ephesians 3.20, Now to Him, to Jesus, who is able to do exceeding, abundantly, beyond all we could ask or think. How? According to the power that works in us. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The fourth thing a believer gains in a relationship with Christ is the fellowship of Christ in suffering. In Christ... I gain a comforter in my suffering. There is not anything I will ever walk through in life alone. He will always be there with me to comfort, to encourage, to strengthen, to guide. Verse 10 reads, In the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And then the fifth thing a believer gains through a relationship with Christ is sharing in the future glory of Christ. The believer's future, here's the believer's future. It is a resurrected body to reign and rule with Jesus in an eternal romance. Verse 11 reads, in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, continuing in that last paragraph of the introduction, moving into Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16, we discover that, all, that despite all Paul gained in Christ, this did not lead him to passivity in his Christian faith, but created an intense desire to go deeper in his relationship with Christ and to pursue the goal of becoming more and more like Christ. Paul uses the metaphor of a race in these verses to illustrate the effort that is worthy in the pursuit of the infinite prize of Christ. Now, before we look at the race metaphor, let me give you another analogy that might be helpful in understanding the intense desire that a believer should have to grow deeper in his relationship with Christ. Marriage is the union of a man and woman in a relationship in which they become husband and wife. And that's True, despite the Supreme Court's ruling. Uh, That is what marriage is. But here's my point. The fact that a couple has a marriage ceremony, the fact that they enter the marriage union, does not guarantee a successful or fulfilling relationship. Now, the ceremony, entering the union, it's very important, but it's just the beginning As that couple goes forward, a successful and fulfilling marriage relationship takes great effort. The couple must reciprocate to one another's love. Marriage involves a lifelong process of blending of two lives into one through understanding, communication, sharing, and intimacy as the couple faces the challenges of life together. Now, in the same way, when a person is converted and enters a union with Christ, conversion alone does not guarantee a successful and fulfilling relationship with Christ. Any more than a marriage ceremony guarantees the marriage couple a successful and fulfilling relationship. 
Now, praise God, in our union with Christ, He will forever remain faithful to us. He will never dissolve the relationship. Once captured by Christ's love, there is no escape. But for the relationship to be successful and fulfilling, we must reciprocate to His love. In Philippians 3, Paul is not only rejoicing in all that he gained in his union with Christ, those five glorious realities we looked at a moment ago, a personal relationship with Christ, the righteousness of Christ, power to overcome sin and serve God, a comforter in suffering, and a glorious future with Christ, but he is expressing in this chapter his intense passion to reciprocate to Christ's love and experience all those things in their fullness. Do you understand? See, Paul is saying, I'm not content with simply the fact that my sins have been forgiven and I have a home in heaven. I could never be content with that and that alone. I praise God for that, but I want to experience Jesus in all of His fullness. I want to experience those five realities as much as a person on this side of eternity can experience those things. And this is what Paul means In verse 12 when he said, I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So in Philippians chapter 3 verses 12 through 16, Paul uses the metaphor of a race to describe his intense passion and pursuit to know Christ deeper and deeper and to become more like him. Paul shares four qualities necessary to run the race and win the prize. And remember, we talked about this two weeks ago. Remember what it means to run and win in this context. To win is growing deeper in your relationship with Christ. To win is becoming more like Jesus. To win is to remain faithful to Christ each step of the race, that when you finally cross that finish line, you hear those words, what? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So look at these four qualities that we need to bring to our relationship with Christ as we would pursue Him uh, to go deeper in that relationship and to become more like Him. And it begins with dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction with my present spiritual condition that motivates me to experience deeper depths of Christ's likeness. This is one of the key ingredients in any great athlete's life, in any great runner's life. They never are satisfied with what they have presently obtained. They always realize there's more. They're always after improving their skills, improving the gifts that God has given them. So we need to know A holy dissatisfaction with our present spiritual condition. A dissatisfaction that doesn't bring me down into condemnation and discouragement, but motivates me to experience deeper depths of Christ's likeness. Look at what Paul wrote in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. I go forward in order that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. The great pastor and preacher A.W. Tozer wrote, Complacency 
is the deadly enemy of spiritual progress. And that is true. He said the contented soul is the stagnant soul. When speaking of earthly goods, Paul could say, I have learned to be content. But when referring to his spiritual life, he testified, I press toward the mark. You know, two weeks ago, we looked at the church at Laodicea, the lukewarm church. And remember, Jesus said, I wish you were hot. I even would prefer you being cold over what you are, just lukewarm, apathetic, complacent, thinking that you're spiritually fine, but you've just really put it on autopilot, and you really don't have a passion to pursue me, to go deeper in your relationship with me. And he told that church that that apathy, that complacency actually nauseated him. It made him sick. So where are you? Are you hot? Are you cold? Or have you just become lukewarm, complacent? Look at the second thing that's required to run and win the race. Concentration. And concentration on one thing. Remaining faithful to Christ each step of the race in order to cross the finish line of winner. Look at verse 13. He says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, one thing. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. And again, we're reviewing the message from two weeks ago. And this is one area that I'd like to amplify right now. I didn't have time two weeks ago. In your pursuit of Christ, now listen very carefully. You, in that pursuit, and as you run the race, you cannot allow yourself to be distracted, to be slowed down by past sorrow, sin, or success. Now concerning past sorrow, I have the greatest compassion for those that have lost loved ones. I've had a significant part of my counseling ministry over the years related to dealing with those in grief. And, and I understand that pain. And I know grief is very personal. It's very messy. No, people, no two people grieve the same way. Uh, it's a process. It, it takes time. But let me tenderly and lovingly say, as tenderly and as lovingly as I possibly can say it, there comes a point in dealing with grief where you must resolve. I'm going to stop looking back at what I lost, and I'm going to start looking forward to my future with Christ. There just comes that point. And if you're struggling with grief and looking back and it has either slowed you in the race or even stopped you in your tracks, I encourage you by God's grace, stop looking back. Jesus has a glorious future ahead of you and resolve to press forward even in the midst of the grief and in the pain. Now concerning past sin, it is impossible to run the race while carrying the weight of unresolved guilt or bitterness. But praise God, there's no need to carry guilt or bitterness. You can shed yourself 
of that weight. If your weight is guilt, then you shed it how? By trusting God's mercy. Demonstrated to you through the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross as he died for the penalty of your sin. I had a very dear friend uh, recently. Matter of fact, at the uh, uh, pregnancy center meeting I was just in in Columbus, Ohio, uh, that gave this to me. It's a, it's a wonderful prayer for divine mercy. And, and, and just in part, the prayer reads this way. I have offended you grievously, O beloved Redeemer. But it would be still worse if I were to offend you by thinking that you were lacking in goodness to forgive me. I would rather he deprive me of everything else than the trust I have in your mercy. Should I fall a hundred times, or should my crimes be a hundred times worse than they actually are, I would continue to trust in your mercy. Take, take your Bibles just a moment. Let me just give you a, a marvelous scripture passage along these lines. And if you're struggling with guilt, uh, something you can resort to. Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a psalm of David. Uh, David wrote this psalm uh, after the most grievous failure uh, in his life. He not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, but he killed her husband Uriah. He murdered Uriah in order to cover his sin. So you have adultery, you have murder, and then this whole web of deception that he created trying to cover up his sin. But of course, you know God eventually broke through and he was brought to repentance. And notice what he wrote in Psalm 32. We'll read verses 1 through 5. He said, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And keep in mind, he's referring to adultery, murder, and deception here. Whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. And folks, pretty difficult to run the race carrying that kind of weight, that kind of burden of guilt. But again, notice now, he sheds it. He says, I acknowledged my sin to thee. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. And if you want a New Testament reference, 1 John chapter 1, if we what? Confess our sins. He is faithful and just what? To forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So no one needs to leave this sanctuary today carrying the weight of guilt. Because Jesus is extending his mercy to you. Now, if bitterness is your weight, if you're holding a grudge against someone who hurt you, who, who wounded you, you need to let it go. And you let it go by what? If, 
by forgiving your offender. You cannot dwell on past offenses and at the same time run the course God has laid out in front of you. Colossians chapter 3 verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, that's pretty all-inclusive, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, concerning success, here's simple reality. Yesterday's success cannot win today's race. That's just a reality. Every athlete knows that if I won last weekend's game on the football field, that's no guarantee going into the next week, or whether it's whatever the contest may be. So yesterday's success cannot win today's race. What matters is making the maximum effort in the present. Look at the third thing we need to bring to this Christian race as we pursue deeper depths of Christ-likeness, motivation. Motivation to run and win the race comes from keeping my eyes fixed on the prize of Christ. Keeping my eyes fixed on the prize of Christ. Philippians 3.14, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in, of God in Christ Jesus. And the key word in that verse is the word goal. If you've got the King James versions, it's Mark, M-A-R-K, Mark. In the Greek text, it's the word skopio, and I shared with you two weeks ago what that word means. It means to have your head erect, looking forward, and you're, you're riveted, you're focused on one singular object, just oblivious of everything else, of all other distractions, and your one goal in life is to go forward to apprehend that object and to make it your own. Powerful word in the Greek text. So Paul is saying, this is how I live my life. I don't put my eyes on my circumstances. I don't put my eyes on people that fail me. I keep my eyes on Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. And my one goal in life is to go forward, is to know Him, is to apprehend Him, is to lay hold of Him, and to please Him in all things. And then the last thing that we looked at two weeks ago was the matter of discipline. It takes discipline to run and win the race. Discipline in training standards without which no one wins the race. We're talking about things getting in the Word of God, getting in prayer, uh, developing friendships within the body of Christ where you can know mutual encouragement and accountability of one another. All that's necessary to run and win the race. Look at uh, verses 15 and 16. Let us therefore as many as are perfect, that word would be mature, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we've obtained. Two weeks ago, we looked at the 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 10 passage. We won't turn there again. We did have opportunity to deal with that, and uh, I felt adequately. But if, if, you, if you remember that, it's a great example. Because... The end of chapter 9, Paul talks about running the race. 
And because he wants to win the prize, he disciplines himself. He buffets his body lest he becomes disqualified. And then he gives this tremendous example of the children of Israel who were redeemed, delivered out of Egypt. And God intended to take them into the promised land. And five different times he uses the word all. He says they all were redeemed from Israel. They were all baptized in the Red Sea. They were all, they all ate of the same spiritual, uh, uh, drank the same spiritual drink and ate of the same spiritual food. All, 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 all. And then all of a sudden you come and it says, but with most of them God was not well pleased. They all began the race. But most of them failed in discipline. And then he talks about idolatry. He talks about their greed, their selfishness. He talks about their immorality. It, all, it became all about their self-gratification rather than God's glorification. And they became a people that murmured, they complained, fell into sin and bitterness. And, they, and it's not that they lost their salvation, but they missed the blessing God intended to give them. As they wandered in those, the wilderness for those 40 years, never able to enter the promised land, the blessing God had intended for them. So that is a review of two weeks ago. Now, look at helpful tips in running the race as we walk through this in the remainder of our time. This is Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. And the first helpful tip is to follow godly examples who pursue Christ-like sanctification. Follow godly examples who pursue Christ-like sanctification. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. And we've already seen in our study of, of Philippians, Paul not only uses his own life as an example, but he raised up the life of what? Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples uh, to follow. Uh, men to focus in on and to pattern your life after them. Uh, look at uh, Philippians 4 verse 9. Just a great cross reference. Paul says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. In other words, he's saying, follow my example. Now, let me just be very transparent for a moment. I'll be very, let me just open my heart to you. Andy Merritt is not what I ought to be. All you need to do is ask my wife and my children, and they'll tell you that. But at the same time, by God's grace, I can say I'm definitely not what I used to be. And I've walked with God now since 1970. And I've known God's grace. And I just, I just want you to know, the messages that I share on Sunday, these are not messages just prepared in a study. I do my best to wed this with life and the lessons that God has taught me. And the reason I provide you sermon notes is something that you can take with you, that you can continue to reflect upon and to practice in your life. And how many times have I said from this pulpit, listening to a message has never changed the first person. It's acting on the message. It's practicing the truth. And how do you run the race? You run the race one step at a time. 
And I just use this opportunity to one more time encourage you. Take the sermon notes. Take the scripture references. And just zero on one area. I know I often give you a lot. Don't get overwhelmed with that. Just grab hold of one area every Sunday and and commit yourself. I'm leaving here to put that into practice. So possibly this Sunday, maybe God spoke to you about your need to stop looking back to a past sorrow and to begin looking forward to your future with Christ. Or maybe you've been dealing with guilt. And you've been trying to cover that sin. And God has spoke to you this morning. You need to confess that. You need to acknowledge that before God. You need to be able to wipe that slate clean. To shed yourself of that weight. It may be the issue of bitterness. It may be to develop a godly, to follow a godly example. To find a woman friend or a male friend that you could connect with that would aid you in running the race. Just pick one area. That's how growth happens. It's one step at a time. And it's being intentional and it's being deliberate. My life evolved around athletics for so many, many years at a very high level. I've never known any athlete that's worth anything that didn't come to his trade with, with being very deliberate, being very intentional, and providing maximum effort. And why should, should we not do that in our relationship with Christ? Is He not worthy of that? Has He not loved us with a love that should inspire that kind of motivation? and intense desire? Look at the second tip. We're not only to follow godly examples who pursue Christ-like sanctification. We're to flee false teachers who pursue selfish gratification. Uh, This was one of the greatest concerns in Paul's ministry as he dealt with these churches. uh, To protect uh, the flock uh, from false teachers that would uh, turn them away from from the cross uh, to pursue selfish gratification. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, For many walk, of whom I often told you. Notice, when he was there at Philippi, this is something he often warned them about. And he says, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, if you've been with us throughout this entire study, it's very obvious that one of the very specific applications is to the Judaizers that Paul dealt with earlier in chapter 3. Judaizers who were trying to add works to faith. They said, you know, believing and trusting Christ alone is not adequate. If you're going to be saved, you have to observe the law. You have to, through works, gain acceptance with God. So he's definitely referring to those, but in our day, There are really two primary areas uh, where we're confronted with false teaching. The first is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You know, name it and claim it. Where, you know, God's going to give you every dream that you ever want. It's it's where God is reduced to like a genie in the bottle that will give you your, your three wishes. Instead of realizing, no, He doesn't exist to serve us, we exist to serve Him. 
And it's in serving Him that we find true joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. And the other area is what you could call a marketing approach to the gospel. And and this is what we're seeing in many of our evangelical churches, where Jesus is viewed as the product, the congregation or man, people are viewed as the consumer. And so how can I package Jesus so that He'll be very attractive to people? And what happens with that type of approach is what? They take all the hard things out, out. In other words, they focus on all the benefits, but none of the responsibilities of Christianity. You hear an absence of repentance, an absence of sin, an absence of a message of holiness. It's all about man's felt needs. Instead of, again, God's glorification. And and that brings me to what is the common denominator in both of those false teachings. Whether it's the health, wealth, and prosperity folks, name it and claim it folks, or whether it's this marketing approach to to the gospel, the common denominator is they both focus on the gratification of man. That's where the focus is, not the glorification of God. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and and I'm going to be sharing right now a number of verses that you won't find in your sermon notes. And so uh, you can just put these references on the side column, or I'll be glad to provide this through the uh, edge or the enlightener in the next couple of weeks if you just want to sit back and relax. But 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 reads, For a time is coming, and we're at that time, when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires their own selfish desires, and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth, reject the truth, and chase after myths. Now look in your sermon notes. Look at the four marks of the enemies of the cross. Look at four marks of false teachers. Look at their destiny. It's judgment. Paul said there in Philippians 3, whose end is destruction. What are their desires? Where their desires are out of control. The passage says, whose God is their appetite. And they're not trying to resist those selfish desires, those fleshly appetites. They are feeding them. And even using Christianity as a cloak in order to get what they want. To get wealthy. Or whatever it might be. Look at their deeds. Scandalous. It says, whose glory is in their shame. Let me give you a great cross-reference. 2 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14. 2 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14 reads, referring to these false teachers, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, blemishes, stains and blemishes on the bride of Christ. Reloving, uh, 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 carousing in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery and that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. And most of you have lived long enough. I mean, eventually, most of these false teachers are exposed for their greed, they're exposed for their sexual immorality. And it puts a blight on the church and on the testimony of Christ. And then their disposition. What's their disposition? Selfish-minded. He says, who set their minds on earthly things. They're not looking to heaven. They're not looking to Christ. It's all about them. 
and manipulating people for their own purposes. And let me mention, and again, this is not in your notes, let me mention very, very quickly three tricks of their trade because I I want you to be able to be very discerning. Three tricks of the trade uh, of false teachers. First, they will exploit you with persuasive words. They will exploit you with persuasive words. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 3 says, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Romans chapter 16 verses 17 and 18. Stay away from them. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They are serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. Now listen, listen, beloved, listen very carefully. False teachers teach truth, but they very subtly mix error with the truth. The most important thing to remember is that their goal is not teaching truth, but seducing people. They twist the truth. They misapply it to achieve their own selfish ends. And they are very skilled and very persuasive in doing this. Look at the second trick of their trade. They will excite you with a a great show. A great show of spiritual power. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 reads, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity. And the word arrogant means to become big-headed and boastful. False teachers become lost in visions of grandeur about themselves. And they boast of great spiritual power. Many claim to have received direct revelation from God. And they will try to wow you and they'll try to excite you with the exercise of power. Folks, when the lights come on, they know how to put on a great show. And sadly, many true believers are just swept into that deception that are not anchored in God's Word. And then their third trick, and this is one of their very, very best, they entice you. They will entice you with the promise of freedom from pain and personal gratification. If you listen to their message, that's typically the very heart of it. This promise of giving you freedom from pain and bringing you personal gratification. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, it says, They entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. See, false teachers target people who are trying to escape great pain in their lives. And notice the word to entice. In the Greek, it's a fishing term, and it literally means to catch with bait. And what do false teachers bait their hook with? They promise freedom from pain. False teachers know that people in pain are very vulnerable. Why? Because when you're hurting, you lose your objectivity. All you know is you want to stop hurting. You want the pain to end. So the false teachers, masquerading as loving, caring shepherds, oh, they promise all sorts of things, while they themselves are the slaves, as he mentioned, to depravity. So there you have the subversion of false teachers, the, tree, the sort of three tricks of their trade. They exploit you with persuasive words, they will excite you with a show of power, and they'll entice you with the freedom from pain and the promise of personal gratification. And my advice is don't take the bait. 
Now look at those. These are very five important questions to answer before following any minister. Now listen to me. This is what I'm, this is what I'm telling you you need to do. Before you ever, before you ever subject yourself to any man or woman's ministry, whether it be my ministry from this pulpit, or any pastor, or any radio, or TV preacher, or minister, whoever it might be, you need to try to answer these five questions. In other words, before you get so really excited about this ministry they've built, you need to examine the lives they live. Because you need to understand what false teachers do. They will confess Christ publicly, but privately their lives deny Him. So the first question you need to is, is this minister under strong accountability? Who is he accountable to? I mean, is he just a lone wolf out there, has no accountability to any group, to any, anybody, any organization, to anything at all? See, of the, notice, of the 21 New Testament qualifications for a Christian leader, 20 of the 21 deal with a man's character and his home life. So never put yourself under the ministry of someone who's not accountable and does not know strong accountability for his life, for his finances. Look at the second question. Is he preoccupied with acquiring wealth? Look at his lifestyle. The Bible says a minister is to be free from the love of money, not fond of sordid gain. A minister shouldn't be so much concerned with increasing his standard of living as increasing his standard of giving to be an example to the flock. The third question, is he skilled in accurately handling God's Word? See, most heresies are truth out of balance, taught by men not trained in biblical interpretation. Fourth question, and one of the most important, does he teach the whole counsel of God's Word? Look at that next statement. The issue for a false teacher is not truth, but subduction, uh, seduction. Therefore, he gives people what they want to hear, not what they ought to hear. And then that next statement is the most important thing you'll hear me say about false teachers this morning. Examine not only what he teaches, but what he fails to teach. Listen, not only what this man or woman is teaching, but what are they not saying? Are you hearing repentance? Are you hearing holiness? Are you hearing the glorification of Jesus Christ? Or is it just all about me and what I need, what I want? Listen, listen, not only to what they teach, but what they leave out. So do they teach the whole counsel of God? And then the fifth question, is this person committed to his home? The home is where the heart is revealed. And a false teacher does not want his heart exposed. So we're looking at helpful tips in running the race. So we're to follow follow godly examples who pursue Christ-like sanctification. We're to flee false teachers who pursue selfish gratification. And then third... Lastly, we're to focus on Christ's return and future glorification. 
Look at Philippians chapter 3, the last uh, two verses in that chapter, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in where? Heaven. This is not my home. From which also we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. As believers, we are to live in the future tense. The return of Christ is our primary motivation to live a godly life. We realize that that return is also going to provide for us accountability as we will stand before Christ to give an account of our lives and how we did pursue Him, the passion in which we pursued Him with, how deliberate and intentional we were in running the race and hopefully winning the race. Circle that word subject right there at the end, and I'll, 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 I'll stop with this, subject. You know, that word means uh, to get up under the, the authority of someone. And it's talking about the fact that, of course, our citizenship is in heaven. Our, our bridegroom is heaven. So, we're, you know, we're not, we're not waiting just for an event. We're waiting for him, the bridegroom, to come for his bride. And it says when that happens, what? He will transform these bodies of ours. Where there's coming a day where we'll actually be delivered not only from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin, to be perfectly pure as He is pure. But folks, we need to subject ourselves now to the authority of God. Like we sang earlier, Lord, we surrender. Do what you want to do. We want to see you move. Do what you want to do. We submit to your authority to serve your agenda, to seek your approval. And so, Lord, give us the grace to faithfully run the race and to be able to cross that finish line a winner. Father, thank you for the encouragement, the exhortation we've received over the last couple of messages to run the race and to run it in such a way to win the prize, knowing the prize is Jesus. The prize is a deeper relationship with Him. The prize is greater depths of Christ's likeness as His life would be formed in us to be displayed through us. And Lord, give us the grace to apply this truth, to apply these three helpful tips that we would follow godly examples, that we would flee false teachers, and that we would focus for motivation and accountability on the return of our dear Savior, Jesus. So, Father, thank you for your great love in sending your Son. Thank you that He ran the race that you set before Him And he remained faithful to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, Lord, as we run our race, give us also the grace, the strength, the empowerment to take up our cross and to follow him. For it's in his name we do pray. Amen. As the invitation is extended uh, today...
Possibly you're here and uh, you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Uh, And this morning, uh, through the message, which was primarily to believers, to followers of Christ, you've realized the reason Jesus came to this earth was to die on the cross for you. That as He died on that cross, your sin was placed on Him. Your guilt, your penalty. And He took the punishment that you deserved. He took it for you. He took your judgment. He took your penalty. He experienced the very wrath of God for you so that today you could know His mercy. And that's extended to anyone who will put their trust in Jesus who will place their faith in Jesus as the Son of God who died for them and then rose again to offer the gift of forgiveness. And we would encourage you today to open up your heart, to make your heart His home as you would invite Him in, not only to forgive you of your sins, but to take control of your life. And then you begin that wonderful marriage with Jesus where you pursue Him with passion. To go deeper in that relationship. And to go deeper into depths of Christ-likeness. So put your trust in Him. Believer, how has God spoken to you? Again, what's that one area that God has sort of put His finger on? And you're going to leave here committed to know God's grace and obeying in that area, in being deliberate and intentional in running the race by applying that principle. And I encourage you to do that. So please stand as the invitation is extended. I'll be standing here to greet anyone that has a decision of any nature, and you just be obedient.